Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 2 as we come back to our study of this great gospel. We started a journey through the book of Matthew a couple of weeks ago, and it's already proven to be a great blessing in my life, hopefully in yours. And this morning we have the joy of reading a well-known story of the visit of the Magi. We have grown so used to singing songs about the joy of this season Joy to the world, the Lord has come, or hearing uh, about the uh, herald angels singing in the sky. It might be difficult to imagine that the arrival of the baby Jesus was initially thought of as a cause for fear. But that's part of the story that gets lost in the celebrations, all the songs about peace on earth and goodwill to men. But as we come to Matthew this morning, we read this story of the Magi, and it's intended to be read against the backdrop of a couple of different responses. There's a response, obviously, of the Magi themselves, but also the response of the leaders of Israel, because whereas the Magi are models of genuine faith who are eager to pursue Christ who are eager to find him, who are eager to bow down to him, they're contrasted with what could only be said in the best case as apathy on the part of Israel, but what is really outright distress felt by Jewish leaders at the news that potentially the Messiah had been born. Listen to the story as I read it from Matthew's Gospel, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was born, where the child was, excuse me. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered to him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Matthew gives us this story, and it is recorded uniquely in his gospel. We don't find it in the other gospels. As a matter of fact, when you compare the stories of Matthew and Luke, not to mention John and Mark, you find that there's very little overlap in their stories. They are sharing what they're sharing for their own purposes, for their own 
sort of uh, uh, theological message. And it's no different here as we come to this. Matthew has chosen this story among all the stories he would have known about as it relates to Christ's birth. He chose this one to emphasize his theological message in this gospel. We emphasize it at the beginning, how he's written his gospel to share the news of Jesus as the true Messiah of Israel, as the son of David. He was the fulfillment of a promise that God had made to King David a thousand years earlier to place someone on the throne, someone from the lineage of David, to place him on the throne and he would reign over Israel forever and of his kingdom there would be no end. Now, there were mixed, Jew, uh, mixed views excuse me, among the Jews about this Messiah in the first century. There was a grassroots movement that apparently clung to this belief of Messiah, and, they, and it manifests itself from time to time in some of their writings, particularly the ones that have been preserved for us in the Qumran caves, uh, in, among the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls as we know them. But among the powerful elite... There was apparently a widespread effort to suppress any idea of a Messiah. Many of those who were in leadership had no legitimacy to their leadership. If they were priests, they were not true descendants of Zadok, and so therefore they weren't legitimate in their roles as high priests. If they were of royal stock, of the Uh, of the king's household, they weren't a part of the house of David, and so therefore they had no legitimate claim on the throne. Both of these groups, the illegitimate priests and the illegitimate royal family then, felt threatened anytime someone would tell a story or make a claim that the Messiah was coming. They were kings and priests in Israel But they were more concerned about protecting their own positions and their own power than they were really about the things the Bible talked about, the message of the Scripture. And they were going to do anything they could to stop anyone who would make a claim to Messiahship. Now that helps you understand Matthew's story here. It helps us to understand their response and and helps us to understand Matthew's purpose in sharing. And Matthew's not interested in giving us every detail that Luke gave us. He's not attempting to write a full biography of Jesus' entire life or a full history of his childhood. His purpose here is to show us, first of all, that Jesus is the true Messiah, but also to show us that Israel, when Jesus arrived, Israel was in no way really interested in God's plan of the Messiah. And that becomes clear as you hear this story of this visit from the Magi. And Matthew gives us this account from these visitors in order to focus our attention on four features from this visit that reveal Israel's spiritual condition at the time of Jesus' arrival. Notice how he begins in verses 1 and 2 with the fascination of these foreigners, the fascination of the foreign visitors. He tells us that these events took place after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of Herod the king. Now, we don't know how long after his birth these things took place, but it's very clear that all this took place after Jesus' birth. 
Matthew doesn't give us the exact dates. We know from down in verse 16 when Herod realizes that the Magi didn't return to him and didn't bring him the information he was looking for out of them, that he sent word to slaughter all the babies who were born in Bethlehem who were two years old or under. So we assume that at the very least this took place within two years of Jesus' birth. It's obvious that Herod believed that, but he probably chose that age of two, not out of precision in terms of dating, but more as a strategy to account for any kind of deception or mistakes that might have been made by the Magi or, or even by his soldiers, and just to make absolutely sure that he killed any baby who would have such a claim to the throne. The reality is all these things took place probably very close to Jesus' birth, maybe within months of Jesus' birth. Mary and Joseph, we know, weren't permanent residents of Bethlehem. Their home was in Nazareth. They would have been like anyone. They would have been eager to return to their home as soon as the census was completed and as soon as their baby was healthy for travel. And so while we don't know the actual time frame, we we believe that this probably took place pretty quickly after Jesus' birth. We also don't really know exactly when it took place on the calendar, though we have a pretty good idea of these things. Historically, church scholars for a long time believed that Jesus was actually born in 2 B.C. That that has uh, been challenged over the last 120 years, 120 years ago, Uh, Someone had calculated the time of King Herod's death to be 4 B.C., and because of that, obviously, he was still alive at Jesus' birth, and so they therefore assumed that Jesus was born in 5 B.C., or maybe even earlier in 6 B.C., but recent scholarship has uh, realized that Herod probably died in 1 B.C., shortly after a major lunar eclipse in the month of January, as Josephus says. And so we can conclude from that that um, Jesus was probably born shortly before that, maybe near the end of 2 B.C. Later on, Luke would tell us, as Jesus began his ministry in 29 A.D., that he was about 30 years old whenever he started his public ministry. So all the numbers line up. So all this took place there uh, within this time frame, the the time near Herod's death, the time shortly after Jesus' birth, and these magi show up from the east. And while it may be a familiar part of the story for you and I, it would have struck the early readers of Matthew's gospel as a startling development. Because someone who began to tell the story of Israel's Messiah would not typically have included early on a story of pagan worshipers. Not just pagan worshipers. These were pagan priestly worshipers. They were magi, which we've come to be familiar with calling them wise men, but that wouldn't have been the assessment of early readers. It wouldn't have been the assessment of of Jews, The word magi or magoi as it is in Greek, and we just transliterate it directly over from the Greek and take it as the word uh, magi, 
Matthew doesn't tell us much about them. So much of what we know, probably you and I know, has been constructed from what we've seen in Christmas cards or in, uh, in various forms of art. But Matthew really doesn't tell us their names. He doesn't tell us how they were dressed. He doesn't tell us what they were writing or if they were writing. He doesn't tell us any of those things. He doesn't really even tell us how many of them there were. Traditionally, people assume there were three because there were three gifts that were mentioned, but there might have been 20 of them. No one really knows. All we know is that they were magi and they were from the east. Now, we can reconstruct certain things just from what we know in history. Magi were basically an ancient tribe of people from Medo-Persia. You remember the Medo-Persian Empire that eventually conquered Babylon. This was, this was their, uh, their context. They were from the deserts of the Middle East, these Magi, an ancient tribe of Medes, chosen long, long ago to serve as the priestly tribe of the Medo-Persians. Much like the Levites were the priestly tribe of Israel, these were the priestly tribe of pagan nations. They were sometimes referred to as wise men because as a tribe of priests, they were the ones who were often educated, they were proficient in certain uh, uh, disciplines in architecture, in, in uh, what is called pharmacology. We might just uh, call it drugs. Uh, they were proficient in mathematics and in astronomy. They had a particular a fascination with mathematics and astronomy and, and serving as national priests. They incorporated this into their religion. And so astronomy led to really a fascination with the occult and with astrology. And they even developed uh, divination processes associated with, with their own gazing at the planets and the stars. And, and it was mixed together with their pharmacology and with sorcery and with occultic practices. And all of this is why we have adopted the word magic from magi. Because they're, they're associated with those kinds of ideas. They're associated with occultic practices, with, with pagan sorcery, with incantations and enchantments. This is not the group of people you would have expected to be the first ones to come worship the Messiah. As a result of their expertise in all these disciplines, they were even sometimes looked at as advisors to the king in uh, Medo-Persia, and they took on very high-ranking positions in the administration, even, even as they transitioned from Medo-Persian rule to Greek rule and from Greek rule on into the Roman Empire, all of that time, the, the Magi retained their exalted position in the Far East and in places of the Old Testament and ancient uh, Near Eastern literature, you see them again and again and again as regular members of the royal court, high-ranking advisors. You see them in Esther, Esther, the book of Esther, chapter 1, verse 13, when King Ahasuerus was trying to decide whether or not to depose his queen, Vashti. And it says that the king said to the Magi, 
who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew law and justice and were, who were close to him, to the seven princes of Persia and Media who had, uh, who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place of the kingdom. So in other words, he, he wanted to make a decision about whether to depose his own queen, and he couldn't do it without first getting the counsel and the endorsement of these magi. They were not just interpreters of, of uh, Medo-Persian religion. They were kind of kingmakers. They were advisors to, to the, the placement of the royal family. And of course, even earlier than that, we have record of these magi in the book of Daniel. If you have your Bible, turn over there for a moment to the book of Daniel, and you can get some idea about these guys. Daniel chapter 2 is the first place we can begin. Daniel chapter 2, and we have this long section introducing these men in Daniel 2 verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. These words here just kind of, uh, kind of uh, gathered together the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers. They're all interchangeable. Uh, you could... You could uh, uh, translate the words, whether they are epoidos in the Greek or magos in the Greek. Uh, Any of them could be translated as magicians or sorcerers or enchanters. He goes on, after having summoned them to tell him his dream. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar is a smart man, though, and he said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you'll receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that this word from me is firm. If you don't make known the dream, excuse me, if you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I will know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no Great power, excuse me, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing the king asks is too difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. Because of this, this, the king was angry 
very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. You say, well, why in the world was Daniel a part of this group? Well, because Daniel had been educated in the arts of Babylon. He had been brought in as a young man. He had been placed among this group of people who were considered to be the advisors to the king. And he had been trained up in all of their sciences and all of their mathematics. Of course, we know from the book of Daniel, without embracing their occultic and magical beliefs. And yet he was among these uh, these wise men. You go to Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Nebuchadnezzar's account of this. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my place. I saw a dream that made me afraid. And as I lay in my bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me and that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians and the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers came in and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he whose name was Belteshazzar, after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying, O Belteshazzar, king of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and there's no mystery too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. Here is Daniel once again. He is not just a part of the wise men, not just a part of the royal advisors, not just a part of the magi. He was the head of the magi, the head of the magicians. And down in chapter 5, one more time, verse 11 There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the day of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And and King Nebuchadnezzar, your uh, uh, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers because an excellent spirit of knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel, who the king named Belteshazzar. So this was some 600 years or so, 550, 600 years before the time of Christ. God had raised up one of the godliest men of all time and placed him as the head of the Magi. And of course, Daniel had great insight not only into dreams, but he had great insight into God's Word, and he had great insight into the Messiah. And he had all these prophecies about the birth of a coming Christ, a coming Messiah, and he no doubt shared them and taught them to the younger generation of Magi. He who is now the chief of all the Magi and and the one who is instructed to oversee them and train them, no doubt would have given them all of his insight into what was coming in the world. And he would have given them, among all the things he gave them, surely he would have given them the word of Daniel 7, 
Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Now, eventually, Darius would come and conquer the Babylonians, and he would retain Daniel over again as the chief of the Magi, and he would continue to promote all of these great truths to the people. But he would die off one day. He would um, fade away, and no doubt other priest would have been put into his place. Jews themselves would have eventually been released from captivity. They would have returned to their own homeland. But we know that a significant number of Jews remained in Babylon. In fact, that was one of the strongest communities of Jews outside of Israel. And their Jewish writings, we know as the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, is the most respected and recognized Uh, version of the Talmud in Jewish literature. And so there was a strong ongoing worship of God, a strong ongoing study of his scripture, a strong ongoing influence from, from all of these people, and they cherished especially the writings of Daniel. But while that's going on, the Magi carried on in their own a sort of religion, syncretizing all of their ancient beliefs, eventually introducing as a national religion something called Zoroastrianism, which incorporated all of the astrological beliefs of the Magi with all of their traditional religions and all of their occultic practices. And they are everywhere looked at with disdain by Jews. In fact, uh, in Acts chapter 13, there was a magician who followed after Paul trying to bargain with him to purchase the rights to the power that he saw coming from Paul's miracles, and Paul rebuked him. Some petty sorcerer. But all along the way, no doubt, there were those who continued to remember the stories of Daniel. Continued to study his beliefs, continued to study his writings as one of their ancient magi. And they would have studied them, no doubt, all the way till the time of Christ's coming. And so we'll go back to Matthew chapter 2, and we read about these magi, these sorcerers, these magicians, these occultic, priestly leaders coming into Israel, there would have been no doubt a look of scorn upon them for what was thought of as their paganism. But these weren't pagans. These were among those who had clung to an understanding of the coming king. 
And it helps us to understand as they come in riding, probably not as we see on our pictures, uh, camels. They would have probably been riding Persian steeds. They came in, no doubt, accompanied by a regiment of soldiers. Some people have speculated it would have been no less than a hundred soldiers who escorted them. It would have been quite a show as they arrived in Jerusalem. And they arrived with the ancient knowledge of Daniel's prophecy, and they hoped to have seen the Messiah, they say that they saw his star rising in the east. Now, what is this star? Now, there are a lot of theories about what it is. You can read them in all sorts of commentators and articles and books. Some people say, think it was a genuine star, uh, a really an alignment of plant, uh, planets and distant stars somewhere out in space. And, and these people who were given to astronomy to begin with would have been making uh, calculations, and some people have talked about the alignment of perhaps Jupiter and Saturn in 7 BC, which doesn't make any sense in terms of the timing. And because of that, other people have looked for other solutions. Some people suggest a comet, a low-hanging meteor, all of those things on the assumption that the Magi, who specialized in astronomy, had somehow discerned through their observations of the planets some sort of alignment over the western sky that would have pointed them to Jerusalem and maybe God had ordained, they would think, things that brought all this together. But I doubt really any of that. I don't think that's the case at all. And the reason is because if you look down in verse 9, the star which originally led them west now leads them southeast. The star which they had seen in the east, went on before them until until it came and stood over where the child was down in Bethlehem. I don't know anything about astronomy, but I'm pretty sure stars don't move quite like that. This was something different. This is more than a literal star could ever do. I will tell you what uh, the Scripture tells us that God often appeared visibly to people in the form of a glowing and shining brightness with His glory. Exodus 33, Moses used to go out to the tent and pitch it outside the camp of Israel, a good distance, we're told, from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And it came about that every time someone sought the Lord, they would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about that whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. And it came about that whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak to Moses. I, I think this is probably something more akin to what was taking place. The star wasn't some heavenly body, it was the glory of God, and it was the glory of God manifest in blazing, glorious light, like the glory of the Lord that hovered over the tent of meeting when Moses went in. And these astronomers saw it. They would have been gazing at the sky, they would have been studying the seasons and the stars and the movement of the planets, but they saw the glory of God, and they concluded, having known everything they know about the Messiah, that this must be a sign of the king, the, the one that Daniel had spoken about. And I'll tell you even further, not just from those sort of deductions, but 
uh, why I think this is probably the glory of God that, 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 that was shining over them. Even the Magi, apparently, when they got to Jerusalem, didn't see it anymore. They came and started asking around because the star apparently had disappeared. It reappears down in verse 9, but this is not something that they saw in the sky and just remained there. It was something that appeared and went away. And at the same time, it was something which when they saw it, only they saw it. It was revealed to them, apparently, not to anyone else in Jerusalem. Probably very similar to what you read in Luke chapter 2, when in the region of Bethlehem, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord suddenly, suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shined around them. This is probably what's going on here. The Lord was just manifesting the shining light of his glory, announcing the birth of Christ and leading on uh, for these wise men from their eastern country to Jerusalem. That's kind of what we can piece together about what's taking place, but really the question is why? Why? Is all this taking place? Well, really, it's because, as John tells us, that Jesus came to his own and his own didn't receive him. God ordained all of these things. He ordained 600 years earlier that a man would be exalted to the chief of the Magi in Babylon and that he would write a book called Daniel and he would tell of a coming Messiah. He ordained that these magi would be searching the skies. He ordained that this light would appear to them. He ordained that these kingmakers in uh, Persia would would have been familiar with these texts, he ordained that they come to Jerusalem and they, they start asking for the king of the Jews. He ordained all of this in order to emphasize that this Messiah was not only rejected by his own people, he ordained it so that this Messiah would be recognized by the nations. It wasn't just for the Jews that he came. It was for anyone who's seeking him. Well, that helps focus our attention on a second feature that Matthew emphasizes here, which is not just the fascination of these foreign leaders, but also the fear of Israel's leaders. The fear of Israel's leaders. In verse 3, Matthew tells us the Herod, the king, heard this and he was troubled. He was, he was disturbed or, or unsettled. The word is literally shaking. So he was internally shaken by this. And all Jerusalem with him. This is... This is not all Israel, but at least uh, Jerusalem, which was the center of power for the elites, we would say. And Matthew is probably referring primarily to Jerusalem as those ones who were within the circle of Herod, within the circle of the elites. If news leaked out about this coming uh, band of magi, it probably didn't go very far because Matthew only mentions the disturbance taking place in Jerusalem and most certainly centered on the palace of Herod. He was disturbed, as was all the leaders of Israel. 
Now, this makes sense from what we know of Herod. He was an extremely suspicious and jealous man. Throughout his 37-year reign, he slaughtered almost anyone that he felt threatened by. Even his own wife, he had her killed. Then his mother-in-law, and then two of his sons. And then Josephus tells us, five days before his death, he had his own son Antipater, who was already declared to be heir to the throne, he had his own son Antipater killed because he suspected Antipater of a plot. In fact, whenever these events were taking place, he was waiting on word to come back from Rome to give him permission to slaughter his own son. And he had even, he had even burned alive a couple of prominent Pharisees in the middle of Jerusalem right about this time. He was an extremely brutal, suspicious, and jealous man. And so you can imagine when these magi arrive, who are well known, among other things, as kingmakers. And here they arrive in Israel asking for the king of the Jews, which, by the way, there was no king in Medo-Persia around this time in 2 BC, and that was cause of great concern for Roman uh, authorities. Historians tell us that Rome, when there was not a clear monarch in a particular area, they were worried that some rebel would come to the throne, someone that they couldn't control and manipulate. And so there was a lot of angst over who would be chosen as the next leader among the Medo-Persians. And so when these guys show up and start talking about a king, I'm sure there was concern that uh, these guys would want to make this child their own king. And it would cause a tremendous stir throughout all of Jerusalem. They were troubled as they heard the news of the birth of this child. It's really sad. It's really sad, their response, when they heard the potential news of the birth of the Messiah. Now, this was what was in their heart as it relates to the work of God. Rather than fascination, rather than excitement, rather than wonder about what God was doing, rather than an eagerness and a readiness and a humble submissiveness, rather than all of that, they were ready to fight against anything and everything that might upset their prosperity, might upset their power and their position outwardly, They were priests and they were scribes and they were guardians of the Bible. They were guardians of Israel's religion. But inwardly, they could care less about God. They they, they couldn't care less about God, I should say. These priests, these these, uh, pagan uh, magi from a foreign country, these enchanters and these magicians showed more interest in the work of God than Israel's own priests. In verse 4, we read that Herod assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was, be, was to be born. And that invites our attention to a third feature surrounding the visit of the Magi, which is a foretelling of Israel's prophets. The foretelling of Israel's prophets, Herod calls these religious leaders together that they would have been primarily among the Sadducees, also some Pharisees, as we know, sat on the Sanhedrin. But these were the religious leaders who had sold their soul to Rome and to the world. And these leaders tell Herod exactly what he wanted to know because it was clear. 
The prophet Micah had clearly foretold hundreds of years earlier that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. In fact, there was an incident in Matthew, excuse me, John chapter 7, when Jesus went up to the festival at one point in his ministry and he stood up and he taught in the temple and the people were amazed at his knowledge and someone began to say, this is the Messiah. And John says, everyone responded and said, is the Messiah to come from Galilee? That's all they knew about Christ is he come from Nazareth. Has not the scripture said that the Messiah comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? This was common knowledge. Everyone seemed to understand that the Messiah would come from the town of Bethlehem. And so when he calls the chief priests and the scribes and everything, they point Herod to the scripture as it's plainly taught, Micah 5.2, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means... Least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, it's important to note that Matthew makes a couple of significant changes, or I shouldn't say significant, he makes a couple of changes as he quotes this verse. And you'll find this often when New Testament writers are quoting from the Old Testament. A lot of times, when they're talking about the fulfillment of the Old Testament, they'll make small changes to a verse, not to change its meaning, but to bring out or to highlight. Uh, what is implied in the verse if it's not explicitly clear to make more explicit what was implicit already in the verse and how exactly it was being fulfilled. And this is what we find here. If you read Micah 5.2, its emphasis is on the fact that, that Bethlehem is too small. It says, you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Israel... But Matthew changes that completely, and no longer is Bethlehem too little. In fact, he says, O Bethlehem, who is not too little. Udamas is the word, emphatic negator. It is most often translated, most certainly not. You, O Bethlehem, are most certainly not little, he's saying. He's not changing the meaning of Micah here. He's making Micah's point explicit. Because Micah was talking about how small and insignificant of a town Bethlehem was in light of the fact that it would be the birthplace of the Messiah. And so Matthew brings that out by basically saying, yeah, Bethlehem was insignificant, but not anymore. In fact, he He does that by adding a little conjunction, the word for. For from you shall come a ruler. So so, so Bethlehem was, was insignificant, but now, because the ruler has come from you, you are by no means, you most certainly not the least among the clans and the rulers of Israel. Probably not the way that they quoted it to Herod, but this is the way that Matthew paraphrases it in his own words to emphasize for us the meaning of this verse. And then he finally adds at the end of that, this ruler, he says, who will shepherd my people Israel. From you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's not found in the book of Micah. It actually comes from 2 Samuel chapter 5. 
verse 2, a promise that God originally made to King David. And now Matthew appends it, merges it together with this verse, applying it to Jesus to make it explicit that he is the fulfillment of the Davidic promise. Again, New Testament writers do this often, bringing together multiple verses, merging them together to emphasize, to help, help us to understand with Scripture interpreting Scripture, to help us understand how exactly God is fulfilling His plan. The sad thing is, all of these Scriptures were so clear to the religious elites. All of it was so clear to the architects of Israel's religion. They clearly understood this verse. Everyone understood this verse. And yet, there was no readiness to receive it. They, they knew all kinds of things about the Bible They probably could have quoted to you hundreds of prophecies. They studied them, they taught them, and yet for all of their Bible knowledge, they did not know the God of the Bible. For all of their insights into the birth of the Christ, they wanted nothing to do with Him. And yet here they are visited by a group of pagan priests, Persian magi, whose heritage was astrology and sorcery and occultism. And these are the men that showed interest in Christ. What a contrast. What a testimony of God's mercy. How he extends his mercy beyond the bounds of traditional religion. How he extends his mercy beyond the backgrounds of what you might expect and those who were brought up we, we might imagine in all the right circumstances with all the right knowledge and all the right teaching and yet they're the very ones who are so often missing God and these pagans have found him they found him well Matthew tells us in verse 7 Herod, having figured out this prophecy, he summons the, the Magi secretly and ascertains from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. This is a total charade. I mean, he's just playing the game like he has become so adept at doing, like so many people do when it comes to false religion. He's just playing the game. He's, he's, he's pretending like he wants to worship this child. But he really has this sly plan to use these magi as his spies. He's putting on a front, playing along, trying to get any details that he could so that he could eventually, down in verse 16, slaughter the baby. Just a show. Like all the religious leaders in Israel, like so many religious people down through the ages, like so many people who just go through the motions at Christmas every year, they sing the songs, they do all the traditions, but they're not at all interested in the real Christ. They're just pretending. Herod is just pretending. Well, verse 9, they heard the king and they went their way. 
And it brings us to the fourth feature that Matthew is focusing on here is the visit of these magi, which is the faith of the magi, the faith of the magi. He says, Behold the star that they had seen when it rose and went before them until it came and rested over the place where the child was. This star, the shining bright uh, image of the glory of God, turned south and led them. It reappeared after having disappeared and it led them again. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. No doubt because they thought the trail had gone cold. No doubt because they thought that they would have come all this way and not really ever found what they were looking for. And so when it reappears, it gives them great joy because they realize that they're going to be led right to the doorstep of their destination. And eventually it comes and it rests over the place where the child was. And we read that they went into the house, which may not be any different than the place where Jesus is born. We know that he was, he was born outside of an inn because there was no place for them in the inn. We know that when he was born, he was placed in a manger. But that doesn't necessarily mean a barn or a stall because many times people would have uh, mangers or troughs for their animals inside their houses or or at best outside along the edge of their houses. Now here's Jesus having been born probably brought into the house now where he was born and they enter into the house and they see the child with Mary his mother and they fall down and they worship him. No worship of Mary. No veneration of her. They worship the baby. People have questioned whether or not this really is significant at all. The word worship here could be translated as simply venerate or, or in some benign way you might translate it honor. It's translated that way one time in the New Testament, but the vast majority of uses, this is the typical word for worship. And it wouldn't be a stretch in a day when people generally thought about their kings as deified men. People worshipped Caesar. The Persians worshipped their gods, uh, excuse me, their kings as gods. It wouldn't be a stretch for them to think of this child as some sort of God-man. But more importantly... They understand this, not just as a king, but they understand this as the one promised by Daniel. The one who's going forth is from old. This was the pre-existent one. He didn't just appear. He didn't just become created. He existed before. He pre-existed this earthly existence because he came down from heaven to take on human flesh. And they present their gifts in such a way as reflect that. Gold, which was obviously customary gifts for kings. You see it with David and Solomon. Their palaces were covered with gold. Even Joseph and Daniel were draped in gold when they were called to serve alongside of or closely to the kings. This is a gift recognizing Jesus in his royal role. Frankincense, which really was an incense Almost everywhere we see it, it was burned in worship to gods. 
It was a product that was scraped off of trees and with like an oil squeezed out of it and would be added to flames that were burned, creating a kind of an aroma as you sprinkled it in that would rise uh, metaphorically before the God. And so this is a recognition not only as a child, as a king, but him as a God to be worshipped like a God. And then myrrh, which was a gift for a mortal, a perfume that was used for people. Esther used it when she prepared herself to come before the king. It was used, uh, we know, for burials to cover the stench of a decaying body. Nicodemus bought a hundred pounds of it to embalm the body of Christ. This wasn't just God. This was God in human flesh and they gave him provisions that acknowledged all of those things. Whether Jesus ever used these gifts, we don't know. They may have been sold to fund the emergency trip down to Egypt. We can't be sure. But the remarkable thing is not in how they were used. It's in how they were given and by whom they were given. They, 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 these pagans came and they weren't offended by the humble surroundings of this child. None of those sort of historical realities caused them to question the legitimacy of this baby. They just came to marvel at his glory because this was the one who fulfilled a 600-year-old prophecy exactly as God had said. You know, in a sense, it didn't take much to convince these magi to worship him because the questions they were asking were questions for the truth. They were seeking after answers. They were asking questions not about their own power and their own glory and their own prestige. They were asking questions about the meaning of fulfilled prophecy and the meaning of the words that God had revealed. It didn't take much to convince them. At the same time, you couldn't do enough to convince Herod and the religious leaders. You couldn't do enough to convince these religious hypocrites to worship the child because their questions were different. Their questions were all about their own comforts, their own agenda, their own glory, their own wealth, their own power. They didn't have hearts that were ready to receive this child. So obviously the question for us is what what are the questions in your heart this Christmas season? What, What kind of things are you asking as you're getting ready to go through what are essentially worship traditions in the next couple of days? Are there questions about your own wealth, your own prestige, your own glory? Or are there questions of fascination with this child and everything that God has said about him? Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. If you're here this morning and you have questions, questions about Christ, we want to answer those. We have a visitor reception that's down the hallway to the right. If you 
are here and would like to know how you can know this Christ, this Messiah, please stop by and see us. Father, we're grateful for our time together, thankful for the word, thankful that we can study it and it can come alive in our hearts and minds as we understand it in its original context. What a magnificent thing that you called these pagan priests, made known to them the glory of your Son. Thank you, Lord, that you've called us as well. Thank you that we who were far off have been brought near. May we never take it for granted, your tender mercies, to show to us the truth. And may we never take for granted the privilege that we have to worship him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.